Welcome to this week's episode of The Knowing Heart. The title of this week's lecture is Beyond the Mechanics of Living, Getting Beyond the Zombie Life. Okay, so before I even begin, I just want to share with you that there's two things unique about this week's episode, and that is that it is built on a teaching of the Rebbe, which is built upon the teaching of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch. Now, what's unique and important about that is that the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe was the one that founded the Chabad Yeshiva, in which the students were studying three hours a day the Hasidic teachings. And thus, the level of the discourses of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe took on a whole new dimension as they were geared towards these students. Another specific thing about this teaching of the Rebbe that I am focusing on is that while the Rebbe delivered it in 1969, later in 1991, the Rebbe re-edited it in preparing it for print. Now, what that means is that when the Rebbe would say a mimer, the Rebbe would allude to other things, and then later when we would study it, we would have to understand and do the research. However, when the Rebbe edited a mimer, there was nothing left to the imagination, so to speak. So every detail is explored in the context and in, and in the footnotes. And therefore, you're going to find that this week's episode of The Knowing Heart is going to be, it's going to be more thorough, it's going to be more detailed, it's going to be more, more, I guess the word I want to use is, it's going to be broader, and it may go longer. And what I want to share with you here is that for those of you who are, who are, you know, used to and old timers to this platform, you know that my job is to make this all palatable for someone that did not go to yeshiva and does not have the academic background to these concepts. So I must share with you what a pleasurable experience in working this teaching into a lecture for the public. Okay, now with that said, let's dive right into it. Let's start, as always, with the modern-day issue. Everything in Hasidus, no matter how deep it gets, its primary purpose is not academic, but to enhance our lives and to give us strength and direction in dealing with the modern-day world as a Jew. So, the modern-day issue today is called Living Contently. Now, to live life is to live the greatest conundrum of all and to embrace the two antithetical working psyches within every breath that we take. And yet, so many have mastered it. And the gift of its mastery is not necessarily wealth, power, or fame. Rather, it is but sheer, true contentment. When every part of us feels acknowledged, validated, respected, safe, and nurtured, when we, what we feel is sheer, true contentment, and there is no amount of power or pleasure in the world that can buy that or even sustain that. In this lecture, we are going to explore the antithetical dualism that exists within us from the angle of our mechanical living and our passionate living. Yes, many clinch the challenge of this dualism by working all week while enjoying the weekends, working for months while enjoying vacation weeks, and by fulfilling our duties and then enjoying our hobbies. So we balance out the mechanical and the passionate. Now, for those of us who have abused our passions, transforming them into obsessions or even addictions, 
for those of us who pay the price with debilitating depression and he even the high-end addicts who successfully maintain their duties therapy lies in and I quote go back to the essentials <coughs> excuse me such as morning showers brushing teeth making beds yes the road back is through working the mechanical life and for those of us who have succumbed to the squareness of the essentials killing our passion dreams and adventurous side living completely in rote our therapy is to take a vacation an excursion and to find a hobby we do only because we enjoy doing it now here we are going to explore whether we can consummate our innate antithetical dualism rather than feed them separately and we are going to explore this by first exploring the spiritual source to this dualism okay this lecture is based primarily on a mimer a mystical discourse the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1969 exploring the life of Sarah as summed up with the verse the opening verse of this week's Torah portion and the life of Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and seven years these were the years of the life of Sarah okay let's start now with the introductions so we're going to get into practical and mystical answers to most obvious questions on this verse number one why is each denomination of digits in the verse have its own years right let's see and the life of Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and seven years these were the years of the life of Sarah well the simple way of saying it is that the life of Sarah was 127 years not 100 years 20 years and seven years by the way parenthetically speaking the question gets even deeper when we understand that when it uses the word years for the denomination of hundreds and, tw and tens it uses it in the singular form shana while when it uses the word years for the denomination of the single digits it goes ahead and uses the plural shanim so we need to understand why okay the second obvious question is why does the verse close with repeating the words life of Sarah what does the verse say and the life of Sarah was dot 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 and it concludes with these were the years of the life of Sarah why does the verse um, explain use those words twice Chaye Sarah the life of Sarah now Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki known as Rashi 11th century most famous commentator uh, he lived in old France so he always will explain to us the simple approach to questionable things or things that are not understood in the simple verse so he immediately picks up on this question and he explains as follows that the repetition I'm sorry that the repetition of uh, of the word year year years is actually leading us to understand that we need to extrapolate from the different stages in life and thus I will quote the reason that the word years was written after every digit is to tell you that every digit is to be expounded upon individually when she was 100 years old she was like a 20 year old regarding sin important to know that Biblically speaking, from the heavenly court's perspective, it's not at the age of 13 and 12 that we become accountable for our actions, but at the age of 20. Now, when she was 20 years old, right, she was, she was, I'm sorry, well, when she was like 20 years old regarding sin, and just as 20 years old has not sinned because she is not liable to punishment so too when she was 100 years old she was without sin and when she was 20 she was like a seven-year-old as regards to beauty 
That's what Rashi says. Now, concerning the second question, why does it repeat in its closure the words, the life of Sarah? Rashi says that the repetition of these words come to teach us all of them equally good. Okay, now that is the simple, practical approach to understanding these two questions on the verse from Rashi. Now let's get into the mystical dimension. In Hasidus, the answer concerning separating the denominations of digits is because each denomination represents a different category of the divine emanations as they exist in the world of Atzilut, the world of divinity. And here you're going to start hearing language of Kabbalistic nature. Please don't panic. Everything will be explained in very detailed, clear, precise ways, and most importantly, brought down to the practical understanding of life. So let's go ahead and dive into the mysticism. 100 years, what does that mean? Hundreds represent the ultimate completion of an emanation in which the individual emanation is a compilation of all 10 emanations in which each of the ten emanations is compiled of ten emanations and thus you have the totality of 100 which is called a full face partuf shalem the full face of an emanation now this exists in the supernal crown which is most often referred to the emanation of will now um, obviously, when we talk about the crown, we're talking about the infinite circular emanations in contrast to the ten emanations, which are the three intellects and the seven emotions, which are finite and linear. Nevertheless, here too, the higher you go in holiness, the more transparency and compilation and unity exists. So in the highest level, in the supernal crown, it is the full-blown com compilation of 10 times 10 within the one emanation. Let's go to the 20 years. What is the 20 years? 10 represents the two intellect emanations of wisdom and understanding, in which there is only the compilation which within each emanation of all the 10 emanations and not the 10 made up each of 10. So thus we have the tens digit 20 the intellect of wisdom and the intellect of understanding. Now, parenthetically speaking, for those of you who have studied this concept of emanations, you'll know that there's three intellects, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. However, there is a Kabbalistic rule in the Zohar that says, when you count the crown, you don't count knowledge. In this format, we're counting the crown, so we won't count knowledge. Now, there's a beautiful explanation to why they're interchangeable and why you count only one when you count crown, when you count knowledge instead, but that is out of the scope of this lecture. Now, and seven years, remember here it's plural, shanim. Single digits represent the seven emotion emanations in which each emanation is not open to being a compilation of all the ten emanations, and each emanation exists just as itself. And thus you now understand why over here, where there isn't a unity and compilation, it uses the plural terminology, the plural tense of the word years, shanim. While in the previous two denominations of digits, it uses the singular because here we have a transparency, a unity, and a compilation between all as one. Okay, now that's the first question. Why years, years, years? Now the second question, which is why the verse in its closure repeats the words, the life of Sarah, it is because Sarah, being one of the righteous, saintly, and holy matriarchs, is called a soul of the world of Atzilut, the divinity world, and thus the entire verse speaks of Sirius being the full embodiment of the emanations of Atzilut, 
in the realm of transparency, unity, and divinity. However, we're talking about how Sira lived down here in the physical world of separation. So therefore, the verse is telling us that even as Sira's soul descended into the lower worlds of separation, which is called Briya, creation, Yitzira, formation, and Asiya, action, and into a physical body, she still served in her righteousness and saintliness as a transparent chariot. Now, the word chariot in Kabbalah means that it is the vehicle moving. However, it is completely nullified and self-negating to God, which is the rider of the chariot. Thus, the concluding words of the life of Sarah refers to the lower worlds of separation and speaks of how Sarah, through her devotion and acts of goodness and kindness, drew all the divinity of Atsilut, the world of divinity and unity, into the lower worlds of separation, all the way down into our physical world. So the first part of the verse, which says the life of Sarah was 127, is all talking about the soul of Sarah, which is from Atsilut, and embodies all those spiritual levels of divinity. The closure of the verse, where it says, and this was the life of Sarah, it's talking about how Sarah remained that transparent chariot to the will of God in the physical world. Now, let's be practical. What does that mean? That means that Abraham and Sarah were living in a world of corruption, it was a, a world of paganism. It was a world of, of no obedience to a higher power. And what Abraham and Sarah did in their life was they brought monotheism, kindness, justice, compassion to the world. And that's the simple meaning of what we say, that Sarah, coming from the world of Atsilut, brought all that divinity, unity, monotheism, selflessness, goodness, and kindness into the physical world. Okay, now we need to understand on the mystical level how this process of drawing divinity, light, and unity into our physical, dark, and egocentric division world, how does that work? Introduction number two. The Zohar upon this Parsha explaining our verse first goes on to quote and explain another verse from Ecclesiastics. And that verse, chapter 5, verse 8, King Solomon says, And the advantage of the land is in everything. The king is subservient to the field. Okay, what is going on here? So, just that you know, King Solomon is talking about the accomplishments we bring into the world by living the life of Torah and mitzvot, service to God. Now, let's first dissect the way the Zohar dissects this verse. So number one, you have two categories. You have land, in which there is the advantage of everything. And then we have the field, in which there is the advantage of the king. And the Zohar goes on to explain these two categories, after which Hasidus then goes on to decipher the Zohar's explanation, making it digestible and palatable for us. Now, in order to understand this, we are going to have to first explore one last introduction. Okay, this introduction is really the heart of what we're trying to get to here and that is explaining the mechanical and the passionate. However, in order to understand this, we're going to need to understand the process of creation and the purpose of creation. So let's begin. We find concerning both in Genesis, when we talk about the creation, we find that concerning both the world, which is land, and concerning the Garden of Eden, which is the field, that on the one hand, God created them in a stage of completion and even self-sustaining. And nevertheless, God then goes on in the 
verses of Genesis to command us that we, we must work it, guard it, and complete it. How so? If it's already complete and it's already self-sustaining, why does it need the human work to complete it? Now, can, let's see how that works. Concerning the world, right, land, it says, I'm quoting to you the verse, and God saw that all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Well, right after that, the verse tells us, and God blessed the seventh day, and he hallowed it, for therein, thereon he abstained from all his work that God created to do, la asoto. Now, in all the previous verse, it uses the past tense, which God did. Why over here is it using the futuristic tense, to do? And, and all the commentaries almost focus on this and want to understand what does it mean. So, as we explain the word la asoto, which means to fix it, to complete it, simply means to do. Here, the sages explain that it doesn't mean to do because God already did it, but rather to fix, meaning that God is telling us that he created the world incomplete, and it needs us to fix it and to complete it. But one second, I quoted to you the verse that God said at the end of the six days of creation that everything is perfect and very good. And now he's saying, no, it's incomplete. I want you to complete it. Now let's talk about the field, the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, we find the same contradiction. First it says, and a mist ascended from the land and watered the entire surface of the ground. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the ground every tree pleasant to see and good to eat. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So everything is complete and created in a self-sustaining fashion. Okay. Nevertheless, let's look at what it says after that. The verse goes on to state, and the Lord God took the man, Adam, and he placed him in the Garden of Eden, listen to these words, to work it and to guard it. Why? It's a perfect, complete, self-sustaining system. From here we see that God completed the world on a mechanical level in which the world was complete and self-sustaining. However, the purpose of it all was for mankind to come along and to complete the world on a passionate level. And this God did not create, but rather gave us the tools and the power to do, la asoto, to work it and to guard it. Thus, being that the verse told us that the Garden of Eden was created complete and self-sustaining, so in understanding what it means to work it and to guard it, the Zohar goes on to say and explain that what it means is to work it, this refers to the 248 positive commandments, thou shall do, the precepts. And to guard it, this refers to the 365 prohibitions, thou shall not do. And now, let us begin the lecture. So we understand now that God created the mechanical world to completion and perfection. However, he gave us the duty and the tools to transform this mechanical world into a passionate world. And how do we do this? Through the life of Torah and mitzvot in a physical, practical way. You have a house, you put on a mezuzah. You have a kitchen, you have dairy separate, meat separate, keeping kosher. You have time every day, you study God's Torah, and so forth and so on. Okay, now as you know, I always start the actual lecture with listing the mystical concepts that we're going to explore before we wrap it up in a most practical, tangible way. So today, we have five mystical concepts that we're going to explore. Number one, a desired setting for a desired outcome. Number two, understanding the mechanical world. Number three, understanding kingship, the emanation of kingship, which is land and field. Number four, understanding everything 
and king. Those two concepts mentioned in the verse of King Solomon. And then lastly, the fifth, to understand the final completion. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, so what does it mean a desired setting for a desired outcome? We have explained many times that because God desired a world in which there is freedom of choice, which demands that we see ourselves as somebodies, an egocentric identity, I'm a somebody, outside of being just an expression of God's identity, therefore the foundation of creation is the process of tzimtzum, contraction, in which God continues to pull back the infinite expression of his light, revelation, and continues to contract the finite expression of his light to the point where revelation is obsolete and a realm of total opaqueness, separation, identity, ego, self-centeredness, and even rebellion can exist. However, the desire of such a plane of opaqueness is but the desired setting for God's desire. That means God didn't want it to remain that way. He was creating, so to speak, a playing field, a building ground for the true desired outcome in which we, what is the desired outcome in which we, I'm going to quote Abraham Lincoln here, of the people, for the people, and by the people will freely choose to make of ourselves our reality and our world an abode, not just for the infinite expression, the infinite light, but even for the essence of God, an abode for God, his primary abode. And for us to do this, we will have to reintroduce the light which was hidden and the light which was contracted back through the effects of the symptom process, level by level, until we reveal the essence of God within our opaque world. <laughs> you know, I'm going to share with you something. There's a beautiful teaching of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, and he says like this, God made from nothing something, meaning from total transparency, infinite unity, into separation, identity, ego. And then he went on to say, and God told us to make from something nothing, to take that something, that core something of opaqueness that God created and to refine it, to become transparent, to become once again the perfect abode for the nothingness of God. Nothing needs, means it defies any finite expression, form, and identity. Okay, so let's understand the symptom process from the eye of what it has created. The symptom created two changes in the two primordial lights, the infinite light and the finite light. Now, let's see what these two changes are. Number one, in the infinite light, the symptom created a complete concealment in which the infinite light no more shines as a permeating digestible light, but rather is now only a circle, circular encompassing light around the arena of creation. In practical words, while its existence and its illumination is known and felt by us, nevertheless, it always remains elusive in which we can never truly wrap our existence around it and to make it palatable, conscious source of light and empowerment. And thus it is only encompassing, meaning it's elusive, it's there, we feel it, but we can never wrap our head around it to make it ours so that it becomes a palatable form of empowerment. Now, the second process of the symptom is in the finite light. The light is digestible and permeates our conscious and being, 
but the light keeps on contracting as it descends lower and lower until it becomes capable of being the life force of utter darkness and rebellion. Now that is a phenomenon. The phenomena that the light of God should be able to be a life force and a source to rebellion. Parenthetically speaking, you know, the beautiful Kabbalistic equation of an atheist is a piece of God telling God that God doesn't exist. And that happens because the peace of God is so concealed and gone through so much contractions that can, it can actually entertain the notion that it is something of its own and that God doesn't exist. This is the outcome of the symptom effect on the finite light. Now, let's take it a step further. The way the symptom works is by creating within each stage of the process a dualism in which there is the interior, which represents the essence of the stage, and the exterior, which represents the expression of the stage. For example, there is the stage of the emotion emanations. There is the essence of our emotions, which we experience within ourselves. And this essence of our emotion has two characteristics. One, it can never fully express itself to another. By the way, this is the unhealing pain, the unhealable pain of a true artist. Whatever form of art, music, writing, painting, the artist wants to give you, share with you the essence of their experience. And we marvel at their work and they're disgusted by their work because ultimately they struggle with knowing what they truly felt and seeing that you can never place the essence of what you infinitely felt onto a finite canvas, finite words, finite musical notes. Now, another thing is that it, the essence is not working and driven to shine downwards into expression and sharing, but rather it is always yearning upwards to continuously nurture from its source. Practically speaking, what is the source of emotions? It's our intellect and our paradigm. By how we perceive someone, something, some experience, that will create an appropriate emotion love, fear, attraction, disgust. It all depends upon the paradigm through which we understand it. So therefore, the intellect is the parent, the source of the emotion. Now the essence of the emotion, which like a flame is always going upwards, is always connecting and yearning to go into its source, to even more fully understand it and perceive it so that it grows the emotion. Now, the expression, the external side of an emotion is that which we can express and explain. Now here we have the two characteristics, which is the exact opposite of the interior's characteristics. The exterior's characteristic is that its existence is to express outwardly, in which it can never do justice to embodying the entire emotion. And secondly, it is constantly driven downward to express to the lower rather than constantly yearning upwards to receive from the higher. So that means that what the contraction did was it created a dualism within every stage of the divinity light as it enters into the evolution chain of creation. Now, this, we said, exists within each and every level. For example, I spoke about the emotions. Now let's talk about the infinite circular encompassing light of the supernal crown. There too, we have the interior, which is called Atik, which means Atik Kadisha, the holy Atik. And Atik, one of the meanings is disconnected. 
because being the essence of the crown is disconnected from the evolution chain of creation. It cannot be a source to the evolution chain of creation. Rather, it is only yearning to be connected upward to the essence. And then there is the exterior, which is called Arach Ampin, meaning long faces. Now, the, de the definition of the long faces means that on the one hand, it's the infinite circular, and that is expressed in the word long, infinite, while on the other hand, it's faces, which means specific form and description. And thus, the outer layer, the exterior layer, the expression layer of the supernal crown is already connected to and a source to the evolution chain of creation and now the way this works is this will continue to go ahead and process through the symptom and the long faces serves as a conduit to the source of the linear evolution chain of creation and so too from the higher intellect to the lower intellect from the intellects to the emotions and from the higher emotion to the lower emotion and from the emotions to the garments of thought speech and action we will always have that in each level there is the interior essence of that level itself and then there's exterior expression level of that level itself which job is to give forward to the next lower realm now this all works its way out to the end of the chain and what is the end of the chain the end of the chain in the spiritual realm obviously we the physical is the ultimate end of the chain but on the spiritual level the end of the chain is the tenth emanation which is called kingship now here too we have the interior of kingship and the exterior of kingship and how that works is that once again the interior of kingship is the essence of kingship which is the way it exists within the spiritual world of divinity unity and transparency however the exterior of kingship which job is to express and give lower give forth to the next lower level this level of kingship actually descends into the lower worlds to become the crown of the lower world meaning the life force of the lower world so i hope you're understanding that what we're saying here is that within each dimension itself, there is the essence, parenthetically speaking, passionate, and there is the exterior expression, parenthetically speaking, the mechanical. Now, that we understand this, let's go further. And thus, in every stage and in every world of the evolution chain of creation, the lower world I'm sorry, the lower level and the lower world is only receiving the contracted and minimized external finite expression of the higher world. This is how the symptom process is, so to speak, removing the revelation and conscious dominance of God more and more. Until at the bottom of the evolution chain, there exists a physical coarse world of darkness and evil. Okay, that symptom process was created to completion and is self-sustaining in which the external unifications of the higher emanations produce an external minimized life force for the lower emanations and the worlds. This was Kabbalistic. We're going to explain it in a moment. This is the process to creating a self-sustaining mechanical world which is complete, but lacks an interior passion. Now, I just want to give you a beautiful imagery that Hasidus gives about this concept of unifications of emanations. So, you know, many people perceive the works of Zohar as that of a sexual experience, which we always have the male and the female, the consummation. What's really going on here? What's really going on here is that we talk about the unification of different emanations. And then we talk primarily 
the unification of the male emanation and the female emanation. So in intellects, you have the male wisdom and the female understanding. And in the emotions, you have the six male predatory emanations, and then you have the regality of the feminine emanation kingship. Now, when you have unities, this creates offspring. And offspring here is talking about the child divinity life force for the lower world. So now that you understand that, let's talk about the imagery. So you have six walls to a three-dimensional box. Now, this box will have 12 corners. Thus, you see that when you're going to draw a three-dimensional box, you have to draw 12 lines. However, in truth, there is no such thing as a corner. The corner is only the place where two walls meet, thus creating a corner. Now, to understand this as an imagery for the unification on a Kabbalistic level, there are the six male emotions. Now, the world of divinity, the world of unity is referred to as a dot. The world of separation, identity, is considered a three-dimensional box. Now, what happens is when there is a unification between the walls of the world of unity, there becomes this concept, perceived notion of a corner. Now, these 12 corners of the three-dimensional realm is the sustenance life form which comes down from the spiritual world of unity to the three-dimensional world of separations. Now, how this unification takes place is through us. God put us in the cockpit of this magnificent machine. And we are the center of the universe. And our doing Torah and mitzvot which have its sources in the spiritual emanations, creates the unity between the emanations and primarily between the six divine infinite male predatory emanations and the female recipient of kingship, which becomes the life force of our physical realm. Okay, now let's move on further. Understanding kingship, let's go now to the verse of King Solomon in Ecclesiastes where he speaks of the advantage of the land is everything and the king, capital K, tills to the field. Now, obviously as I shared with you, we're talking about the way this, the verse is explaining, King Solomon's telling us the outcome of what mitzvot and Torah does in this world. So, let's talk about the source of this world and the world of divinity we said is kingship, right? Kingship, the exterior of kingship descends into becoming the crown and life force of the lower physical worlds of uh, the worlds of separation down to the final link in the chain, us, the physical world of separation. Now, let's understand by kingship what is land and what is field. So, simply speaking, the land refers to the exterior of kingship, expression of kingship, and the field represents the interior of kingship, the essence of kingship. Now, on the practical level, the field is a piece of land that is conducive and rich for planting and growing, while the land is not so conducive. The difference between a field and a land. Now, especially so after Adam's sin with the tree of knowledge and when Adam was expelled from the Garden of Eden and what did God say to Adam? I quote, Genesis. To man he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree from which I commanded you saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground for your sake. With toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life and it will cause thorns and thistles to grow for you, and you shall eat the herbs of the field. With the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Which means that even though 
from the onset the field is the more conducive and the land is the more the less conducive once adam sinned now the land became more than just less conducive and then what do we say we now understand the mission that god gave adam right after god told this to adam and again i quote and the lord god sent him out of the garden of eden the field to till the land and what does it mean to till the land to refine the land that it be a place appropriate for planting and growing let's etch away at the opaqueness and the ego that we have the rebellion that we have let's make it elevate it refine it into more transparency so it becomes conducive for growing now being that the law in spirituality is that every descent is for the sake of an even greater ascent thus we understand that the ultimate goal is to yield from even the land an unprecedented harvest and this leads us into the mystical dimension of land and field the land refers as i said to the exterior of kingship which goes through the immense contraction and in which it goes through the uh, the absolute transformation so that when the exterior of kingship of the world of divinity descends into becoming the crown and life force of the world of separation it carries almost nothing of its original divinity unity and transparency that's what the symptom does by creating an exterior only expression thus from this comes the land's coarseness that is not open to planting sprouting and harvesting divinity and holiness the field on the other hand is the interior of kingship which is kingship as it is within its realm of the world of divinity and thus from this evolves the field which is the place of soil garden of eden which is conducive for planting sprouting and harvesting divinity and holiness whoa this sounds so so abstract and mystical so let's get practical we know that the practical physical application of the field versus the land is that the land of israel jerusalem temple mount the holy temple the holy of holies within the holy temple where the ark stood these are all levels of the physical field which is conducive for planting sprouting and harvesting divinity and holiness and not so in the physicality of the outside of the land of israel which is a spiritual reason of why god chose israel chose jerusalem chose the temple mount chose the exact spot of the altar and the holy temple so that's the physical understanding on the difference between the 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 um field and the land okay and this exists in in every level right there's a difference to the coarseness that we experience the heaviness that we experience when we eat red meat versus when we eat chicken versus when we eat fish versus when we eat vegetables because there's a different level of coarseness to the land of it eat of it all now let's go further next concept understanding everything and the king the two dimensions of advantage to the land and the field that king solomon talks about through our study of torah and mitzvot according to kabbalah and Hasidis, the word everything in hebrew kol represents the last of the six male emotions which is the emanation of foundation called yesod now which is the spiritual dimension of the male reproductive organ and therefore you you know you hear the word of tikkun yesod which basically is the tikkun the correction of our sexuality and our sexual drive but what does that mean on the spiritual level now the job of the spiritual level of the male reproductive organ is that it gives over everything from the lights of the world of divinity above 
to the feminine emanation of kingship. Now, the job of kingship is that which brings it through the process of gestation and brings forth an offspring. What is the offspring? Which is the life force of the lower world of separation. However, here too we have the impact of the symptom process in this emanation of Yisod. And that is understanding the mechanical world. There is the interior of Yisod, which as we said, right, which kingship does not receive. And there is the exterior of Yisod, which is what kingship does receive. Now, what does that mean? Let's make it more practical. This is, as we said, the mechanical state of completion and self-sustainment. And that is how the exterior of Yisod is set up to transmit to kingship the exterior finite contraction contracted concealed state of divinity which can become a life force to the mechanical worlds of opaqueness darkness egocentric and rebellion now now this level of completion of the mechanical world that's what god said on the sixth day and god saw all that he made and behold it was very good that was on the mechanical state however then there is the job of the human being in the all his work that god created to do la asoto to correct to tikkun he gave us the job to do that and how do we do that we bring about the unprecedented level of passion divinity and life force of god into the mechanical world through torah study and mitzvot observance now we can understand what king solomon is saying by the advantage of the land is in everything we now know that everything is the yesod the male reproductive transmission emanation into kingship and we now know that the advantage he's talking about is that while god set up the world to mechanically only receive the exterior the contraction the diluted nevertheless god gave us the power and the mission through our torah and mitzvot which connects to the pleasure will essence passion of god thus by doing that we bring the interior of yesod the essence of all the divinity of the higher worlds not just the diluted expression but the essence into kingship which then brings it to us into the world and thus we have the concept of holy places in this world now let us go further now in order to understand the next level of the king tills to the field right we are going to first need to take the transmission of the interior of Yesod to its highest level. So let's just, in one sentence, recap. King Solomon is saying by Torah and mitzvahs, we're bringing the advantage of Yesod transmission into this world. And why do we call it advantage? Because on its own mechanical form, there is no interior influence from Yesod to kingship to our world. However, it's only the exterior, the diluted. However, through Torah and Mitzvot, which connects to the interior essence of God, we create that not only should we have the mechanical world, the diluted exterior transmission, but rather we're bringing the everything of the everything, the interior essence of the Yesod, into kingship into the world that's the way it works when we talk about the land and the advantage of introducing the everything the interior essence everything into the world now let's go to the next level but we have to first like i said have a greater understanding ultimately the emanation of yesod which is the closure of all supernal lights, which has the job to transmit all of this to the emanation of kingship, which then becomes the crown of all inferior worlds and is the life force source of the inferior worlds, right? So this emanation of Yesod ultimately 
is the transmission of all of the lights of the evolution chain of creation, which includes the finite linear permeating light, the emanations, the infinite circular encompassing light, the external, again, I emphasize, the external dimensions of the supernal crown, and even the primordial finite, again, emphasis, finite expression light. This is the advantage that our Torah study and mitzvah observance draws into the land, the exterior of kingship, the life force of the lower worlds. So what I'm saying here is that Yisod is not just giving a, when we do Torah mitzvot and we connect to the interior, so what's happening here is that Yisod is not just giving a watered-down, contracted, concealed, diluted emanations, divinity of the world of, of the Atzilut, the divinity and unity. We're not talking about just the dimensions, the emanations of the linear finite light. But ultimately speaking, Yisod is going to draw into the world through Torah and Mitzvot everything, everything that existed from the get-go of God beginning the process of creating the world, the universe, all of that is going to be drawn into the malchut, into our world, right? That was the process when we created the Holy of Holies and we created the Holy and we created the Temple, we created the Jew. All of that is drawing down from the highest levels, from the highest levels of anything which has to do with the evolution chain of creation, meaning anything that God processed for the sake of creation from the highest primordial level all the way down is all about plain and simple to be transmitted into this world through our Torah and mitzvot so that this physical world becomes the primary residence of God. Okay, now you will note that I emphasize external layer of the crown and I emphasize the primordial finite light. Why so? So, let's go on and explain. Being that we are speaking of the land, which is the exterior of kingship, at its highest point, the advantage of the interior Yisod flow is only the external dimension of the supernal crown and the primordial finite expression light, which are ultimately connected to and a source of the evolution chain of creation. Not so concerning the field. So the land is limited in its being able to receive divinity that it can only receive that which was prepared for it, albeit the passionate level, not the mechanical level, but nevertheless only what was prepared for it from the highest stage. Now the two highest stages I'm talking about here is the supernal crown and only the external level, the long faces of the external crown is part of the process of the evolution chain of creation. And primordially, we're talking about the finite expression of light, not the interior essence of the crown, which remember I said was attic, detached, and not the infinite, the primordial, infinite expression light. Let's go further. So by the field, which is the interior of kingship, of which the advantage created upon the mechanical perfection of the Garden of Eden through the, and again I quote the verse, and the Lord God took the man and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. So what advantage comes to the field beyond the advantage that comes to the land through Torah and mitzvot. What is that? The king, capital K, tills to the field. So now we explain that everything is the emanation of foundation, Yesod, and we explain how that encompasses everything that ever was processed for the sake of creation. But what is the king? What does it mean that the king, what does it mean that the king tills the, to the field? 
And the answer here is, the king is the internal dimension of the supernal crown and the primordial infinite expression light, which transcends completely above and beyond any connection to or being any source of the evolution chain of creation. So there's that which exists. Let, let me share it this way, right? Let's share it this way for a moment. So many of us talk about God as the creator. That, that's not God. God is not creator. One of the things God did was create, which makes God a creator. But that is not God. God is above and beyond. There was God before the existence of creation. So we're talking about the highest primordial levels that does not exist for the sake of the process of the evolution chain of creation. And now we take this even one step higher. We're almost there, people. I mentioned earlier that there is a spiritual rule of every descent is but for the purpose of an even higher ascent. What this means is, that if we, are go, if we are only going to end up reintroducing the primordial lights that existed and shone before the Timsum, then the Timsum descent is but a degradation and defamation to God's light. The primordial infinite light was shining before the Timsum. Thus, we must say that the Tzimtzum, with the purpose of bringing about a physical world of arrogance and darkness, so that we can have a physical Torah study amidst with observance of freedom of choice, must be for the purpose to draw about an unprecedented primordial light, even infinitely above and beyond the primordial infinite light that existed. Thus, we now know that ultimately the king tills to the field, speaks of drawing forth into kingship the ultimate fulfillment of God's desire that we transform the darkness and arrogance of the physical world into an abode, not for the primordial finite light, not for the primordial infinite light, but for the essence of God, a total new revelation through our freedom of choice, Torah study, and mitzvot observance. And now we go to the last concept before we wrap it up. So what is the final completion? So we explained that God created a self-sustaining, complete mechanical system, which is all about contraction, all about diluting, all about having more and more separation, creating the ultimate goal chain, link of the chain, which is the physical course, egocentric, self-centered, rebellious existence of the dark physical world. And this is all for the reason of that through, the, as God said, la asoto, we should do something about it. And God said, work it and guard it and complete it. And what we now know that means is that God created this arena of total opaque darkness, egocentrism, is also that we should make from the something a nothing, meaning that we should take this mechanical world and transform it into a passionate world. In other words, we should take this jungle of a world and transform it into the garden of God, the abode of God, in which God's passion is revealed and lives. And this is done through the study of Torah and mitzvot. Now, the final completion. With this, we have but one last point to explore. And we started this concept in our last lecture as well. Our sages tell us that anything and everything that God created to exist, pre or post symptom, is all for the one desire that God has in creating the universe, which Hasidus quotes from the Medrash Tanchuma that says, the purpose for which this world was created is that the Holy One, blessed be He, desire to have an abode in the lower realms. 
Now, this desire to have an abode in the lower realms is not just about a geographical location for God's abode, but it is of a qualita qualitatively novel, qualitative novelty, Ooh, sorry, in which God's ultimate abode will be of the people, by the people, and for the people. Meaning that the ultimate transparent, humble abode for the essence of God here on this world would be of the coarse e egocentric darkness, by the coarse egocentric darkness, and for the coarse egocentric darkness. And that everything from the highest primordial revelation all existed just for this physical abode of of the coarse egocentric darkness, by the coarse egocentric darkness, and for the coarse egocentric darkness. Okay, practically, what am I saying? Thus we now understand that the strongest focus is not upon the everything, or even the king, which is all about the spirituality, but on the land and the field, the physical, and far more on the deeply darker and coarser land than the more spiritually conducive field and ultimately working the field the holy places is but a gateway to the work and transformation of the land it's all about the land the place which is most coarse most separated most mechanical and let us take this to an even more practical level the ultimate journey is to completely permeate our most mundane mechanical life with the greatest passionate life. life. And with this, let us go into closing. What is the closing? One short paragraph, my friends. In closing, we now understand that it is our mundane and often bothersome mechanical life of personal hygiene, laundry, working a job, housework, and the likes is where our deepest spiritual purpose lies. And the work begins with A, doing it in an honest and kosher way, and B, doing it all for the sake of maintaining our body as being a holy temple for God, and C, as a vehicle to serve God and to sanctify God's name. So no, it isn't just about the moments you have in synagogue, but more importantly, it's the moments that you have in your office. It's not the moments in which you're meditating, but in the moments that you're involved in the rat race of earning a living in your office. It's in the housework to be able to do all of this with the passion of understanding that we are creating the ultimate residential place of God, all about service and connection, revelation of goodness, peace, kindness, and compassion, and selflessness. Thank you very much.